0: by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go once again to the throne of grace. Our Father, now we come to your word. That has been revealed by you through God, the Holy Spirit, so that we know that in that process, that in his, the way in which he oversaw or superintended the writers of Scripture, he guaranteed that that which was written would be without error, infallible, and it carries in every word the stamp of your authority. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to study, to learn, to, that it may transform us, not conforming us to the world around us, not allowing us to be spotted by the world from which we are to be um, separated, and that we are not to be friends with the world, for that is enmity with you. So, Father, we pray that as we study your word today, you would give us insight, and that as we reflect upon it, that God the Holy Spirit will enlighten us to its meaning and its application in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles to Ephesians, and we will look at, initially, just look at the passage that we're studying in Ephesians chapter 4, just to give us that context. And what I am doing and what I am prone to do is as we go through passages verse by verse, that there are various topics or doctrines or subjects that are alluded to or mentioned. And of course, in the writing of a letter, not everything that ought to be said can be said at that moment, and we are to put scripture together with scripture to come to an understanding of what God has said on any and all of these subjects. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, the focal point is on our unity. The command in verse 1 is that we are to walk worthy of that calling. And that calling is not talking about so much the invitation but that this is the new privileged position to which we have been called. It is our identity in Christ, as Paul has said in Ephesians chapter 2, that we have uh, been made alive together with Christ. We have been uh, raised with him, raised together with him, Jew and Gentile, and we are seated together, Jew and Gentile, in this new body in the heavenly places with Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we studied the distinctiveness of this particular body, that it is created by God the Holy Spirit, and that this new entity, the church, which began on the day of Pentecost in AD 33, is a a body of believers that is being built together by the Holy Spirit. It is called one new man. It is called a new body. It is called a new building, and it is called a new temple. And in all of that which was said in chapters 1 through 3, Paul is now in chapters 4 through Six, talking about how we are to live in light of that new position that we have in Christ. So in verses 3 through 6, the writer says that we are to maintain and keep the unity, or we are to, excuse me, we are to uh, strive or endeavor or make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, and that there is one body and one spirit, which is related to what Paul said in First Corinthians 12:13, that in 12:13 it is God, it is by means of God, the Holy Spirit, that we are made one new body, and we have that unity as a result of Christ, as we saw, using the Holy Spirit to produce that unity. And so in verse 5, we read that there is also one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so I pause to look at the topic of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. This morning, we will look at the sealing ministry and the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We have seen that God the Holy Spirit has two specific ministries to the world, that is, the unbelieving world at large. And the first is restraining evil. The second is convicting the world of uh, three things. He convicts them of sin, of righteousness, and judgment, as we have seen. And at the time of salvation, there are a number of things that God the Holy Spirit does to each and every believer. They are not commanded in Scripture except for the filling of the Spirit, filling by means of the Spirit. They are things that happen instantaneously and simultaneously at the instant a person trusts in Christ as Savior. We are regenerated. We are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the Spirit, and we are sealed by the Spirit. And at that instant, we will instantly Start being filled by the Spirit, but as soon as we sin, that is uh, put on hold until we are, our fellowship with God is restored. So we are to make every effort, be diligent, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that begins by understanding this unity that is made when we trust in Christ. So we have this chart. On one side, eternal realities. On the other side, the temporal realities. Temporal realities means our day-to-day walk with God. Eternal realities are those things that are true because of our salvation and all of the things that God did for us at the instant of salvation. We are, as we read in Ephesians 5, we are called sons of light. Paul said, you are sons of light. So that is our position in Christ, and at the instant of salvation, we are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. That's our new position, our new identity, our new legal relationship with God that can never, ever be changed. This is our position. This is who we are in Christ, and on the other side, we are to Walk by means of the Spirit. This is our experience. Some days we walk by the Spirit. Some moments, for some, we walk by the Spirit, and for and other moments we don't. We walk according to the sin nature, according to Ephesians chapter five, uh, uh, Galatians chapter five verse sixteen. So when we are walking by the Spirit, we are filled by the Spirit, as we'll see uh, in our study this morning. The position in Christ refers to our exalted position as the called and we learned that there are these various ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. And so we've looked at the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to the world. He is restraining evil according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the restrainer is taken at the time of the rapture of the church, I believe, that the restrainer is God the Holy Spirit. And in John 16, we are told that he is involved in convicting believers, that we should do the best that we can to articulate a clear gospel. But even if we don't, God the Holy Spirit is working to make that which we have that is true clear to the unbeliever. And the Our Lord said that when he came, he would do three things. And this basically gives you an outline of what ought to be a part of your gospel presentation. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, this isn't a conviction of personal sin where we go off and tell everybody how horrible they've been and all of those kinds of things. Because when um, Jesus explains it in verse 9, he says, Because they do not believe in me and this relates to the fact that he that because of, of of sin they are born spiritually dead and because they are born spiritually dead they are born in condemnation and uh, jesus said in john 3:18 he who believes in him is not condemned but he who believeth not is condemned already he's already condemned why he's born in alienated from the life of God spiritually dead so he is born condemned and if he does not believe in the name of the only begotten son of God he will stay condemned and in that verse we're told that the issue is belief because he who believes is not condemned but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed not because of all of his sins but because he hasn't believed because Christ already paid the penalty for sin. So that legal issue of sin is dealt with on the cross, but we're still born spiritually dead. We're still born without righteousness. And so there has to be two things that have to happen. We have to be made alive, and we have to be given righteousness. And that happens when we trust in Christ. We are regenerated at that instant, and God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ so that he d- looks at us through the, through the fact that we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and he declares us to be righteous. That's the second issue, that we, he, the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness, and he says, "'Because I go to my Father, and you see me no more.'" Now, that may seem pretty abstract to a lot of people. Why does Jesus talk about his resurrection and ascension in relation to righteousness? But in Romans 4.25, Paul says he was handed over because of our transgressions, because he had to go deal with them on the cross, and he was raised for the sake of our justification. So the resurrection is a confirmation, an attestation of God's acceptance of the sacrifice, by which we are justified by faith alone. That is a quick summary of what we studied there. Then the Bible teaches about regeneration, that we were born alienated from the life of God, Ephesians 4.18, which is a sound biblical definition of spiritual death, separation from the life of God. And Jesus told Nicodemus that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so he emphasizes this idea which confuses Nicodemus, which should not have confused him because he was the teacher of Israel and he knew the Old Testament, but because of spiritual blindness, he had not accurately interpreted it. Titus 3.5, as we studied last time, gives us the role of God the Holy Spirit. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. Not one thing can we do to make ourselves saved or savable. All we can do is trust in Christ. Christ did it all on the cross. We simply accept it through faith. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. He saved us by the washing that is actually produced by by the uh, regeneration. That's the best way to handle the Greek there. And then the chi, usually translated and, really has the idea of uh, even in the same way uh, that the second statement is elucidating, expanding on the first statement, the washing of re- regeneration, that is, or even, the renewing produced by God, the Holy Spirit. And this is all based on God's mercy, not on our works. So then we looked at the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of you who haven't been here or gone through this, this is a brain twister. Because a lot of us have not been, we've been taught accurately the theology of it, but we have not always been taught accurately the what the Greek says, because in English translations, it is translated, be baptized by the Holy Spirit. When John makes a prophecy, the one who comes after me will be baptized by the Spirit. I mean, will baptize, the one who comes after me will baptize by the Spirit and by fire. That means Jesus does the baptism. 2 Corinthians twelve thirteen. it was translated by a different translation team in the King James, and they used a different English word, and they said, for it is by the Holy Spirit that, they, that you are baptized. Well, in English that means, that phrase by the Spirit indicates the Spirit does the work, but the prophecy was Christ does it. And... It was just a bad translation because that that Greek phrase is used in every single reference and it should be translated the same way every time. And so what I have said is that the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit is the work of Christ, whereby at the moment of faith alone, in Christ alone, Christ uses the Holy Spirit, let me insert something here, just as John the Baptist used water. Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify the believer with his death, burial, and resurrection and places the believer into the body of Christ. So we're identified with the death, burial, and resurrection. We are placed into Christ, the, the body of Christ, the church, as the Holy Spirit is building this new temple, which is the body of Christ, according to Romans 6, 3 through 6, and Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 19 uh, to 22. So this is wh- exactly what happens. We've said it all the same way. We're baptized by means of the Spirit, Matthew 3, 11, and 1 Corinthians 12, 13 together. And the result of that is that we are now in Christ with a new identity, where the issue is not our ethnicity, Jew or Gentile, which had a divine authorization in the Old Testament so the Jew and Gentile were separated. Uh, Only Jewish males that that were priests of the tribe of Levi could get into the inner part of the temple and have that access to God. But now that barrier between Jew and Gentile, which was the law, has been abolished at the cross, so that, as Paul puts it in Ephesians two, we all have access by one Spirit to God, and that is phenomenal. That is the distinctiveness and uniqueness of the church. And women in the Old Testament could only go as far as the court of the women; they could not get into the temple either. So now, there's all this verse is saying is not that there's no longer any actual slaves or free because the cross didn't free the slaves. And it doesn't say that gender identity between men and women is eradicated or gender roles are eradicated. It's saying that in relation to their access to God, these are no longer issues. The economic, social issue of free or slave, the gender issue of male or female, and the issue of Jew or Gentile are obliterated at the cross in terms of equal access to the Father. Now, there's no command to be baptized by the Spirit. There's no command to be indwelt by the Spirit. There's no command uh, to be sealed by the Spirit. These are all done instantly by God at the moment of our salvation. And we looked also briefly at the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, who is in each of us. We're regenerated, we're indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, and As a result of that position where he indwells us, he is able to also fill us. So 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? A temple is a place where the deity dwells, so God the Holy Spirit in positional sanctification makes our body a temple for the indwelling of God the Father and God the Son. And Romans 8, 9, Paul reiterates this, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. So what he is doing is indwelling us individually and indwelling us corporately as the body of Christ in order to create this new dwelling place for God in the body of Christ. So it's individual and corporate. Now we come to the sealing by the Holy Spirit. We have looked at all of these things in relation to our position in Christ, being baptized, regenerated, indwelt, and now being sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so we, let me skip past this slide, but I'll come back to it later. Uh, definition of the sealing of the Spirit. The seal by the Spirit is the down payment That certifies the salvation, or excuse me, that certifies God's ownership and protection, which secures the salvation of the church age believer from the moment of faith when the Holy Spirit indwells until ultimate salvation and glorification is realized. It's the down payment that certifies, that's what the text says, it is a down payment that certifies that you as a believer will be saved. You can't lose your salvation. You did nothing to earn the free gift. You can do nothing to lose the free gift because you have nothing to do with it. You trust in Christ. He did everything. And so because of that, we have eternal security as, as evidenced by the seal. It certifies God's ownership and protection, which secures our salvation for the moment of faith until we are face to face with the Lord, either through death or the rapture. Ephesians 1.13 says, Whom, in whom, literally in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel. Yes, indeed, there is truth, Mr. Postmodern. There is absolute eternal truth, and part of it includes the gospel of our salvation, that the gospel is the good news, and we ought to rejoice at that every day that we are saved, and we know it, and we can proclaim it, We can never lose it. And that seal, in whom when you believed, again, it's not believed plus anything. Uh, Belief is never qualified in the Scriptures. Over 95 times in the Gospel of John, all you have is believe, 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 believe. You never say truly believe, sincerely believe, actually believed, genuinely believed. It's never there. It's just believe. And those who are condemned are those that believe not and nothing is added to faith. It is faith alone. And whom, when you believed, you were sealed. At that same instant that you believed, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. This is going to be reiterated again at the end, near the end of our chapter, in chapter 4, where Paul will say, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed, for the day of redemption. Even in the Old Testament, Israel is accused of grieving the Holy Spirit. And we studied that last Tuesday night in our study of Judges, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and that's related to his indwelling. All of these are very closely related. All the positional truths about the Holy Spirit are closely related, and we're sealed until the day of redemption because that seal secures us for that end, for that particular uh, purpose. It occurred when we believed, and that seal is this word, sfragizo, which refers to the act of sealing a document for security and also putting a seal on certain documents that would indicate ownership. A seal was usually made out of a very hard wood or usually metal. And then if you're sealing a document, a wax would be placed upon the document and then the seal, which was unique to each person, would be pressed into that soft wax uh, to indicate uh, who owned the property that was being sealed. And that would be something that would also secure it. A seal was placed... On the tomb of Christ to make sure that it was secure and that the disciples could not roll the stone away and steal the body. It is was evidence that Christ rose from the dead because when the uh, disciples and Mary Magdalene came the next on that first Easter morning, Resurrection Day morning. Um, the seal was still in place, and then they were rolling it away, and there was an empty tomb. So this is what we have here is a seal. Now, I always like to explain this in terms of a little Western American history, because in the Old West, the way in which uh, ranchers would secure and mark the ownership of their cattle was with something called branding. There was a branding iron that had on the end uh, something which uh, portrayed their initials or sometimes something else. You'd have like a rocking R or a circle D, something of that nature. And the branding iron wouldn't be heated until it was red hot and then that would be applied to the flanks of the calf And brand the calf, and that would mark the owner of the calf. And that way, when in the early days, for example, in Texas, when there weren't very many fences and everybody's cattle would uh, get mixed up together, then when they had a roundup, they could separate all of the cattle to the correct owner. So you could always identify the ownership of a calf. But you always have the trouble with rustlers. And rustlers had a way of counterfeiting a brand. And what they would do is they would uh, come in with a, and it was called uh, using a cinch ring sometime where they were called a cinch ring artist, and they would take the cinch ring, which was the ring that is on a, on a saddle that uh, on the side strap, and you run the other strap through it, tie it off, and that holds the saddle in place on a horse. So everybody would have one. They could take the cinch ring off and then use pliers to hold it and get it red hot, and then they would use the curve on that cinch ring, to change a brand. And from the outside, it would look as if it wasn't the early brand. You couldn't tell if it had been counterfeited. It looked uh, to the eyes as if it was somebody else's brand, and that's how they would uh, try to steal cattle. The only way you could truly identify that it was counterfeit is that you, when you killed the animal and skinned it, and looked at the reverse side of the hide, then you could see that the brand had been changed. Now, which I like to use that as an illustration because there are some Christians who are sealed by the Spirit and have been branded by the Holy Spirit, and their ownership by God is well-marked. But they have not lived well. They have not been spiritual. They have not grown to spiritual maturity. And their lives, in some cases, have imitated unbelievers. And so from our perspective, you can't really see any evidence of their salvation from the way they live. And it's not until they die that we discover that, oh, indeed, they really were saved. They had trusted Christ at some point, and now they are in heaven Because only at death is the truth of their branding revealed, and God knows who is his, even though sometimes we look at God's children and uh, we think that, well, they can't possibly be saved, but we're all saved. We have such a shallow view of sin that most of us don't comprehend how sinful we are, even though we work hard at walking with the Lord. We don't see the depths of our own arrogance and we're not aware of all those little mental attitude sins that creep in all the time and so we look at somebody who's living in a profligate way and they have all manner of overt sins and we say can that person really be a christian and when we ask the question we've forgotten the basics of the gospel that just because a person trusts in Christ and they're saved, regeneration is not the same as experiential sanctification. Uh, Regeneration, the new life, does not guarantee that they will live well and that they will walk spiritually. So the sealing of the Spirit is the branding. It is that sealing. It was called the Spirit of Promise because you have promises in John 14 in the Upper Room Discourse where Christ prayed, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. Parakletos is the Greek term there, which means a comforter, uh, encourager. Uh, it's translated several w- different ways in different translations. The word another means another of the same kind the same kind as he. He was an encourager. He was a comforter. He came, and so he is leaving to be replaced by another of the same kind, meaning fully God, the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So in 14.16, it's future tense. He will give you another helper. In John 14.26, it's future tense. The Holy Spirit whom the Father will send, future tense. And John 15.26, Jesus says that he too is sending the helper from the Father and that this is still future tense. It's the night before he goes to the cross. And so this fulfills that. Now, an interesting and good comment in the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology says that the real importance of the seal is a legal one. The owner puts his mark on his possessions, his beasts, and thereby guards his property against theft. To that extent, one can call it a protecting sign or a guarantee. So all of this is to fulfill those promises that the Holy Spirit will come. John 16:7 is another one. And the last time it's articulated is in Acts 1 8, when Jesus is seconds away from his ascension to heaven. And at that instant he right before he departs, he says to the disciples that they are to stay here in Jerusalem, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come. They are to stay and wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit's come, Jesus said, You shall receive power and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, which was approximately 10 days after Jesus said this. In Ephesians 4.30, we're told, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed to the day of redemption. And then 2 Corinthians 1.22 who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So this is wonderful teaching of Scripture to remind ourselves that we are gods, and no matter what we do, it cannot take that away. We are sealed until the day of redemption. Notice, we are not sealed until you commit a sin that is too great for the grace of God, or that God forgot to Uh, impute to Christ on the cross because in God's omniscience he knew every single sin every human being would ever commit and he didn't go oops I forgot one and he imputed every one of them to Christ on the cross so there is no sin that we can commit that is too great for the grace of God or that somehow wasn't paid for by Christ on the cross but having the legal penalty paid does not guarantee salvation Trusting in Christ is what takes that to the level where we receive new life and we receive justification by faith alone. Then the next teaching that we need to cover is the, on what the Bible teaches about the filling by the Holy Spirit. Like the baptism by the Spirit and the sealing by the Spirit, the filling by the Spirit also has much confusion associated with it. And it will take more that to not to, or this morning to finish this, but I want to at least cover the first part of this this morning. In Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of that promise that Jesus made in Acts 1.8 that not many days from now the Holy Spirit would come and when the Holy Spirit comes they would receive power and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth and then 10 days goes by and the Holy Spirit descends on the day of Pentecost initially to only the 12 11 now Judas was gone only the 11 people miss that It's only the 11. It will be to the other believers there as the day goes by, but not to every believer everywhere. It's a transition period. How do we know that? Well, because in Acts 19, which is going to be some 20, 25 years later, uh, Paul is going to be in Ephesus, and a group of John the Baptist's disciples... Old Testament believers, because they believed the message of John the Baptist. And they trusted in the Old Testament gospel, the kingdom gospel that John the Baptist was preaching. So they're saved in the Old Testament. But they left Israel. They didn't go anywhere, and they had never heard of Jesus. They had never heard that the Messiah had come. They had never heard that he died on the cross. They were ignorant that things changed. There was a dispensational shift, so they're still saved. That that was true on the day of Pentecost. Who were most of the people who were there at the temple on the day of Pentecost? The context tells you they were devout men. That means they were mostly, they were believers, Old Testament believers. That's why they're there in the temple. But when the Holy Spirit descends there, it's a dispensational shift. So there were lots of people around the Uh, Roman Empire and over in Babylon who were Old Testament believers but they didn't even know that Jesus had come yet. So there's a period of time there where you have people who are still Old Testament saints because they've never heard about Jesus coming yet and then you have those who are hearing about Jesus. That's what happened in Acts 19. Paul gave them the gospel and they trusted in Christ as the Messiah and he baptized them. So we have to understand those those dynamics. So what happens is that the they in verse four, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, can only refer to the apostles, which is the noun that's the antecedent to the pro- this plural pronoun. So they're the ones who initially are filled with the Spirit, and they began to speak with literally other languages, not other other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The tongues issues a different issue. But this has been confusing to many because there are several places in the book of Acts where, for example, in Acts 4, Peter is going to come along, and, and the text will say, and Peter was filled of the, with the Spirit or of the Spirit. And then there's a past, a couple of references in Acts uh, 5 and 6 and to Stephen And there's all these multiple references to the same person uh, being filled by the Spirit. And so in older uh, theologies, older uh, dispensationalists, they would often cite those as the evidence that there are multiple fillings. The evidence that there are multiple fillings is Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled by means of the Spirit. It is the only ministry that's commanded, and it's a binary command. You either are or you aren't. You're either filled or you're not being filled, one or or the other, and we'll explain that as we go along. And so if you're not being filled by the Holy Spirit, then what's going to happen? Well, you've got to do something so you'll be filled again. So obviously, because it's a binary command and it's not once-for-all action, it is something that is repeated. But it's also very clear in the Greek. I'll give you a quick example here. And this is a quote from John Walvoord, president of Dallas Seminary, fine scholar, fine academic, fine theologian, and a great pastor when he was a pastor, makes this statement common to Chafer, Ryrie, many others. The scriptures bear a decisive testimony that the filling of the Spirit is a repeated experience. What's his evidence? The early church was filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter is mentioned as again being filled with the Spirit. The entire company gathered at Jerusalem to hear Peter's report of his encounter with the Sanhedrin are again filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 4.31, Stephen, originally chosen as a deacon because he was filled with the Spirit, is revealed to have been full of the Spirit immediately before, uh, before his martyrdom. Both Paul and Barnabas are found filled with the Holy Spirit at widely differing periods of their lives. Acts 9.17, 11.24, 13.9, and 52. We'll look at those in a minute. So, I was going over this with a group of pastors the other day, and I said, if this were a test, and I'm not going to embarrass anybody by saying, is that a true statement? Most of you would say it's true, but it's false. Why is it false? It is false because the word that is translated filled in Acts 2.4 is the Greek word pemplame, in Ephesians 5.18, when we are commanded to be filled by means of the Spirit, the verb is plerao. Those aren't the same word. They're not interchangeable. Context and usage always determines word meaning, not the dictionary. That's a fundamental principle in any kind of language study. Uh, a lexicographer just listened to how people used a word And then he categorized its various meanings. And so as we were taught at Dallas Seminary, this is what you have to do. You never start a word study by looking at the dictionary. You start a word study by looking at the way in which the word was used. And "pimplamy" is never used as a command. It is like the other words. It is an act of God. We'll see that as we go through this. Not only that, but being but the term here is to be filled, and then the phrase in the Greek is in numity, a preposition plus the dative noun from pneuma, which has the idea of by means of the spirit. All right. Well, what happens in Acts 2:2 is they were filled literally of the spirit. It is a genitive, so it's a different verb and a different grammatical construction. So they can't be talking about the same thing at all. And by failing to note the difference, you have a problem. Now, this is what you have all the way through. Uh, Acts 4.8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit is pemplamey with the genitive. Acts 4.31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's pemplamey with the genitive. Acts 7.55, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit. Now it's not another verb. It's an adjective with the genitive. It's not, it's not meaning the same thing as Ephesians 5.18. Uh, Acts 9.17, uh, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, this is Ananias talking to, to Paul after he was blinded on the road to Damascus. And he says, the Holy, I've been sent... Uh, to you that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's me plus the genitive. This is not the same thing as plerao with the dative. doesn't mean the same thing. Again, Acts 11:24, 24, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. It's an adjective with two genitives following it. So it has to apply the same way. Full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. And what we will see is that this is an idiom that describes character. It is not talking about the sanctification ministry of God the Holy Spirit. It is talking about a unique act that occurred. And uh, again, we see in Acts 13.9, Paul, uh, filled with, full of the Holy Spirit, pemplame with the genitive, looked intently at him. And what we'll see almost every time, that pimplemi is used, it's followed by somebody speaking the truth. It, it, it refers to something close to an inspired utterance. So in conclusion of that, different verbs, though cognates, because pimplamy and plerao you are, are cognates, they're related, different verbs, though cognates, do not have an identical meaning. And second, adjectives based on the same root do not necessarily have the same meaning. And here's my chart the root is P L A. Uh, the P, the Lambda, and the Ada. That's the root. P L E. You see it in Pimplamy in the middle, in Playrao at the beginning, and in Playrace at the beginning. Those are the three different words, but they're three different words, and their usage is distinct. So in Acts six three, when talking about Stephen he is full of the spirit and wisdom so when you're when you're full of wisdom you are wise when you're full of the spirit you're spiritual that's how that is used in that phrase which is different from the way it's used in Ephesians 5:18 you see parallels with dorcas for example she's full of good works and charitable deeds now we're not talking about something that's that's necessarily repeatable it's not like she's full of good works and charitable deeds one day but not the next day this is sum- summarizing her character she was a woman who did many good works and charitable deeds in Acts 11:21, 21 we see for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith so this is a man who is has faith he is faithful and he is spiritual full of the Holy Spirit, a different term and the same phrase different adjectives Acts 13.10, talking about Elymas, full of all deceit and all fraud. He's deceitful. He's fraudful. Okay, that's just the idiom. It's just describing his character. And in Acts 19.28, when the crowd in Ephesus heard heard, uh, Paul, they were full of wrath. They were wrathful. See, these are just descriptive terms of character. They're not the same as what's in Ephesians 5.18. When we have the term for uh, full of the Spirit, like in Luke 4.1, Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, it is pimplami plus the genitive. Again, it's describing his character. He was always full of the Spirit. But we also see it in passages like Luke 1.41 and 42 and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe, that's John the Baptist in her womb, and Elizabeth was what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not Ephesians 5.18. This is the Old Testament dispensation. She is pemplamey with the genitive. And what happens? Then she spoke. That's interesting. When... Pimplemi happens, there's speaking that comes. You look a little later in the chapter when Zacharias is filled of the Holy Spirit, Pimplemi, he prophesies, blessed is the Lord God of Israel. See, Pimplemi followed by speaking. You look at Acts 2, what happens when Peter and the disciples disciples are filled, Pimplemi, of the Holy Spirit? They begin to speak in tongues. And you can go through passage after passage after passage, and about 98% of the time we are specifically told that after Pimplamy they speak. Sometimes, a couple places, it doesn't say what happened, it just says that. So it is related to a special, sovereign work of God that comes upon certain people at certain times, In the Old Testament dispensation or in the very early church, and they speak. But Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. It's an imperative verb and followed by the means of the filling. Now that is a whole other discussion. And it is remarkable to understand the cultural background that the Ephesians would have understood, but most of us don't have a clue because we don't understand the culture of Ephesus, the religious background that was going on there and what this meant. So we'll get into that next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and some things in your word are difficult to understand. Some things it's difficult to work through the translations and the original language. And, and Father, we're just thankful for so many that have gone before that have made accurate, come to accurate conclusions. And we've seen a pattern through the centuries that before people finally get accurate conclusions, they often make many inaccurate conclusions. And so we're thankful for those who have work their way through this and come to clarify just exactly what it means for us to be filled by the Spirit. So, Father, we're thankful for all that you've provided for us and that it is God, the Holy Spirit, who fills us with your Word as part of his sanctifying ministry. Uh, As our Lord prayed in the the night before he went to the cross, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. It is through God, the Holy Spirit, in conjunction with the Word that we are sanctified, matured, we come to understand truth. Father, we pray for any listening today, anyone here who has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they will understand that the good news of Jesus Christ is not that you can work your way to heaven. The good news is you can't work your way to heaven. The good news is Christ did it all on the cross. He paid the penalty for sin, that there is forgiveness, true, genuine, eternal forgiveness by trusting in Christ for his work on the cross. The slate is wiped clean. The certificate of debt was nailed to the cross. And, Father, we pray that anyone listening would understand that the only thing necessary to have eternal life is to believe in Jesus, to believe that he died on the cross for your sins, and that's paid for. And by trusting in him and him alone, you have eternal life. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, worship you. And as we close, we pray that we may uh, continue to think through and discuss what has been taught today. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.